Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt, and I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson and Annalise, the newest addition to the Optive Network. She's a host of the Feminine Not Feminist Podcast, um, and today we're doing just a bonus episode uh, for Christmas slash New Year's. Uh, we're going to be talking about a bunch of different stuff, uh, mostly about Mary and uh, her role in the birth of Christ, and then on the actual date of Christmas and the significance of the date of Christmas. And so I hope you enjoy. All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, My name is Andy Schmidt, and I am here with uh, Annalise from the Feminine Not Feminist podcast and Nick Gibson from my co-host on the Optive Theology podcast. Um, Today, we're doing a little like Christmas bonus episode. We did one of them last year. People kind of liked it. And so we we thought it would be cool to do one uh, this year. And we're going to kind of talk about, so maybe a couple weeks ago, Nick did a sermon at our church in uh, High Point Church in Madison, Wisconsin on uh, on Mary and her important, significant role in the birth of Christ. And, um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And I know that we're all Protestants. A lot of people listen to this are Protestants. And usually when you bring up Mary, people get, get a little nervous and, and, uh, you know, they can, they can get hostile. So (laughs) Nick, before we get going, do you want to talk a little bit about how you can be a Protestant and still you respect Mary and talk about Mary and, and learn from yeah. Mary. Yeah. I think one of the major distinctions that we need to keep in mind is the difference between a saint as hero and a saint as intercessor, right? Like it's one thing to believe that somebody in the Bible or in Christian history is a, like we're obviously the Bible refers to all Christians as saints, but there are like people who are like very exemplary that the Christian tradition is referred to as saints as like what we are all trying to emulate. And it's one thing to say that person's like a hero to me. And then there's another thing to believe that that person now with God, who is a hero of the faith, has an intercessory capacity within prayer so that we would pray to that saint, right? Those are really different views. And I, and so over the history of the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, those two have like melded together in a certain kind of way where people will pray to saints who they believe they would want to emulate or they connect with in some way in terms of them being a hero. And as Protestants, I think we just, we need to divide those two and keep them separated and recognize that the Bible doesn't teach us to treat saints as intercessory objects, but Jesus is the one mediator between God and men. But that at the same time, any saint can be a hero to us and and human beings need heroes. We need multiple sources of emulation so we can figure out who we are while seeking to be like others who are great. Mm-hmm. And I think Mary is as great a saint as anybody in terms of a hero. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how, I guess, so let's start out with why, because I like, when we think about Christmas, like when I think about going to church for Christmas, like I've gone every, basically every year of my entire life. And it's generally speaking, they talk about like in Advent season, like the same things over and over again, which I know tradition is good and being reminded yeah. of the same things is really good. But it, it felt like this year you, Nick, had decided to kind of go a different route where you're going to specifically talk about the, I mean, like Mary and Eve and, and, and some of these yeah. different. Well, our associate pastor who has a PhD in early Christian studies is much more Catholic friendly 
I don't think he's Catholic <laughs> curious, but like he's like, and so the, it was that this was his idea. But he was just trying to come up with like a not what do you not hear every December kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And since this was my like twenty fifth year doing like a Christmas or Advent something, I was ready for another idea. And I've already done all the dark and weird stuff, and so focusing on Mary just seemed like a good organizing principle. Yeah, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Okay, so so Annalise, let's start with talking about Mary. I mean, your your podcast is called feminine, not feminist. You focus on femininity, biblical femininity. So let's talk a little bit about Mary as a, as a exemplary feminine character in the New Testament. Um, I guess I want to hear from you when thinking, when you're thinking about Mary and when you're thinking about who she is biblically, what, uh, I guess what, what characteristics and, um, what attributes and characteristics about her, um, do you think that women and men even should should admire and strive to be like? Yeah, I mean, I think the first word that comes to mind is surrendered because that's kind of the whole point is yeah. she says, I'm the bondservant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your will. Hmm. And I, I mean, I feel like I've seen like leftist or like more progressive kind of takes on Mary. And I feel like they, how do they get around that? Because it's the ultimate like, thy will be done. And, Mm. you know, there's all this stuff about like, it was an unconsenting pregnancy and this kind of stuff. (laughs) You're like, yeah. And she surrendered to it. Um, So that's the word that, that comes to mind is surrendered. And Mm. yes, like God found her faithful beforehand. Mm. And I think that is noteworthy as well, that she Mm. was just unknowingly just living a faithful life, probably a very simple life, very Mm -hmm. devout uh, Jewish woman and -hmm. God found her faithful. And so when she says, I'm bondservant of the Lord, may be done to me according to your will. That's just like a reflection of that, that Mm -hmm. that's what's bound to flow out of that simple, obedient, faithful, devout life. Mm -hmm. So, well, yeah, I, th- I think talk- it's good that you bring up that word on least because like only the New American Standard translates it that way, that I'm the bond slave of the Lord. Most translates just use servant. And in Greek, there's the word diakonos for generic servant and then doulos, which is like slave or like I can't leave whenever I want servant. And Mary uses the more intense word. Like she sees herself as like- The doulos? Not, yeah, she uses the word doulos. Okay. Like I, I don't have consent here because of the fundamental relationship of submission that I have to you, God, which is Correct. correct. Right, and it's the it's the way the apostle Paul refers to himself, and this idea of not my will but yours be done, we find in Jesus' mouth. So it's like, in some ways, it's a characteristically feminine trait, but it's also a universal one. So like, Mary is my hero just as much in this in that way. Mm-hmm. But I think that yeah. a big a big part of something that you were, you're referring to there is that that her calling here is connected to her fertility, hmm. and so like mm-hmm. a lot of women in America don't naturally go, oh, I really connect with that. But man, when I go to India and lots of other places in the world, Mary is really, people are really drawn to her because a lot her calling was in some ways wrapped up in her fertility, like her, how she used her body and who now became her child and how like absolute that calling was. Mm-hmm. That's supposed to resonate with women. It's only because <laughs> of where we're at that it doesn't resonate with a lot of women, yeah. <laughs> but it speaks to the deepest part of a woman, I, in my opinion. So, yeah, yeah. it's sort of like, well, it's, it's amazing that something that biblically Mary's like recognized how hard it was, but also recognized this was the greatest possible privilege she could 
possibly experience as a woman mm-hmm. is to bear the Christ. That like y- you could look at it now and be like, oh, this is terrible. This is so terrible. And you're like, no, it's hard. Right. Depending on what lens you're looking privilege. through yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. to, and the, the other thing that stands out to me about Mary is when she's accepting that or surrendering to that, she knows the shame that's going to accompany that. Right. And she brings up like the logistical point of um, how is this possible, which is a fair question, I think. <laughs> but she she also knows the shame, which is if you can imagine like what it would be today, amplified times a thousand mm-hmm. at that time. Oh, yeah. And the effect on her relationship with Joseph and everything. And she doesn't even bring that up, mm-hmm. um, which is like, oh, he, she trusts God. <laughs> Yeah. Full stop. The, yeah, which okay. I think the, is a good example. Like if you think of like how sometimes we talk about Ephesians five of like wives submitting to their husbands and you're like, well, when mm-hmm. shouldn't they? And one of the answers is like when when you have to obey God or him. And this is one of those deals where like she doesn't cons- doesn't need to consult with Joseph because like this is yeah. God. And so like yeah. there's no he'll yeah. have to he'll have to figure it out. Yeah. Nick, yeah. you talked about the parallel between Mary and and um her kind of asking the question, uh what did she ask? She asked, How is this possible? Um, yeah. compared to I'm blanking in Zachariah. my head. Uh, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exact so talk about that because that was interesting um hearing about yeah. that and the two different attitudes. Yes, okay. So if you, a few verses earlier, right, when the angel comes to tell Zachariah that his wife is going to have John the Baptist, right? Even though his wife has been infertile for decades, right? What Zachariah says is, how do I know that this will happen? Right? Oh. Now, you could understand a little bit of practicality in that question. If you if you interpret that question as positively as you possibly could, you could imagine that Zachariah might be considerably older. Maybe he's in his 70s. Maybe he and his wife are not intimately relating to each other anymore in that way. And so it might be really embarrassing for him to his approach his wife to do that. So like you could like imagine some of those feelings, but it's not that Zachary doesn't know how this happens, right? He's a husband, she's a wife, they could conceive a child. It's just that it hasn't happened. So like, so um, Gabriel takes a certain amount of offense and he's like, hey, listen, you're not going to talk until this happens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with Mary, like there's a very different issue because like she has to get pregnant, right? And how is that going to happen? She doesn't have a husband. She is a virgin. So she's like, so there is this practical question of like, do I need to find a man? Like, but that doesn't seem like what you want. Like, uh, so I am a virgin on purpose, right? I'm not yet married, right? So how is this going to work? And so she has a very, very specific practical question as to how this is going to happen. Because she hasn't conceived of the idea of the virgin, like the immaculate conception or, or like, I'm sorry, not the immaculate, but like her virgin conception, right? She, right? she has no idea how that would happen. She yeah. like, you don't know if like she could have sex with an angel. Does she need to find him a random dude? Yeah. But she knows that that's probably not true. So she doesn't really have, and, and Gabriel gives a very vague answer. He basically just says, sweetie, you don't have to do anything, hmm. right? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of God will overshadow you and you'll find yourself pregnant, right? It's very vague. But it's practically the answer she needs. She doesn't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. Right. And so she's like, okay. So Gabriel didn't come to her to tell her she needed to go do something. He just came to tell her that something was going to happen. So she would mm-hmm. know what was happening when it happened. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so in that yeah. sense, Mary's question is is very different. She's asking, how do I obey? Mm-hmm. How do mm-hmm. I practically obey? Zachariah's asking, I'm really discouraged how can I believe you're telling me the truth? And Gabriel's like, I'm an angel. I stand in the presence of God. I always tell the truth. Mm-hmm. You know? It was funny when you were preaching that you, you said like Zachariah had also just such a, 
Like he, he's being told to like go and have sex with his wife <laughs> from God. It's like, come on. Like that's yeah, like, most guys uh, would be like, this is great. This is a word from the Lord. A, yeah. This is what God told me to do. Uh, so th- that was funny, but, but yeah, I, I think yeah, I, and that no was shame. Really I mean, for, for Zechariah and Elizabeth to have a child, it was the, it was to the taking the shame of decades off of their shoulders. Right. There's no cost. This is an Abraham and Sarah kind of thing. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, so like, um, yeah, I mean, Elizabeth even says something like that. Like he, like God has taken away all of her shame and like everybody rejoices over the, like it it literally says, Gabriel says many will rejoice over the birth of this child. Right. And that, so like John coming is a completely positive thing. Jesus, it's mixed because like Mary is all of a sudden pregnant. She's not supposed Mm -hmm. to be and all that sort of thing. So it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's not the same deal. It's not a, mm-hmm. it's not a hundred percent good. It's not obvious how it's going to happen. And it's not something she's been praying for, for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Ryan, Elizabeth, no doubt have been praying for a child for decades. Right. And he's mm-hmm. finally getting what he's asked God for mm-hmm. believing in his prayer time that God is powerful and maybe would do something miraculous. And then when something miraculous happens, literally in the temple itself, where the presence of God is mm-hmm. supposed to be, he doesn't believe it. Right. Whereas Mary, is receiving something she did not pray for. She doesn't understand how it's going to happen and is going to cost her immensely. And she's like, well, how do you want me to do this? Like it's, it, it really is astounding the difference. And of course, Mary's probably considerably younger than Zachariah. Zachariah has, has education as a priest. He's theologically educated. He has a lot of practical experience, probably teaching the law. Mm-hmm. Mary's younger. We don't know how much younger, but she's probably younger. I always get annoyed when people say, well, she's probably 13 to 15. And like, nobody has right. any idea how old Mary was. <laughs> is yeah. there any, like, th- that's just like, kind of just something that's traditionally been passed down. Cause that's what I heard. No, up there's no 14. tradition. No, people just started saying that like 40 years ago. They're just oh, like, well, really? you know, it's the ancient world. So, you know, as soon as she had her period, they probably wanted to get her pregnant. Factor, yeah. 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 They <laughs> wanted to make the, and some people have tried to ex- like exacerbate it for like the non-cons, but Mary could have been 30. Like it, that's unlikely, but like I always yeah. joke around about like what one of the things that pisses me off is is how Mary is always depicted as like really pretty, and I think there's well, no reason to believe that she could have been like, no like literally not. She totally could have been the ugliest duck in Nazareth, which was not yeah. where people went to buy their Prada bags. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. so like, well, there's no reason to believe she's like some hot, little hot thing. She could have been also. She's depicted oh, as beautiful because of. Like it her, would almost be irreverent right, to depict beauty. her as not beautiful, given that the, the role that she played. It's like, yes, she's objectively, maybe she wasn't physically beautiful, but it would almost be irreverent to like depict her as, I don't know, super yeah. plain. Oh, I bet. I feel like, I feel like, okay, Jesus was. She, I think she should just look like if I was going to encourage an artist, I'd be just like, just make her look like a normal, relatively young woman. And everybody, I mean, like when you get old, like me, I'm in my 40s, so everybody in their 20s looks pretty. Cause they're young. Yeah. Like they just, everybody's pretty when they're young. Like I always tell my daughters, they're like, daddy, am I pretty? I was like, well, everybody's pretty when they're young, but of course you are, you know, like, <laughs> okay. But, but Jesus was like a very average looking guy. Very like, a- I so mean, less I, than I, average, right? Less- he had no beauty that we should desire him. Yeah. So, so, in, so in Isaiah 53, in the prophecy about the Messiah, it says there's nothing about his earthly self that would draw right. us to him. And so most right. people take from that prophetically that, God didn't give Jesus that the father didn't give the Christ in his physical form, that man, Jesus Christ, like favor by making him optically charismatic. Yeah. Right. right? right. And I think that that's, I think that's a, like, I, this is ironic. I think that's a beautiful thing. 
Yeah. But God is well, always upending yeah. worldliness and worldliness is like, oh, you're pretty. You go to the front of the line. Oh, let me let you into the nightclub of like money and fame and whatever. And and Jesus just like wasn't pretty. And there's mm-hmm. and and because of that, I'm not saying Mary wasn't pretty. I don't know. What mm-hmm. I do know is, is that that doesn't matter. Yeah. That's what yeah. I the, 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 the physically pretty. I mean, uh, right. the, the other thing is, OK, so Annalise mentioned this idea of consent, which is obviously what a lot of um it's just a popular buzzword as like over the last like five or six years, like as it relates to like sexual stuff, like we didn't have consent or whatever. And uh, Nick, you had an entire section of the sermon where you talked about consent and, um, and there's, and, and it's, and it's interesting reading about Mary cause, cause you're like, okay, yeah, she, she like technically didn't really like, she's going to have to do this regardless of if she consents or not. But you you did you said maybe I'm wrong about this, but that she like in a, in a way she like did consent. She was like she was she fully surrendered herself to God, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, she know, God, God didn't his... need her consent though. Like, but he, but she right. did, right? Yeah, right. God doesn't ask for her consent, and she offers right. it. Yeah, 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 right, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I so went to what, a Presbyterian church. Yeah. I went to a PCUSA church, which is the more liberal, liberal Presbyterian churches. On, I think it was just last Sunday, and the the pastor was preaching about Mary's consent, and I was just kind of like, and it was like he had missed the point, right? Like, it was it was kind of frustrating because he's basically like, you know, what what allowed all this to happen was Mary's consent, and I'm like, well, that's not true. (laughs) I mean, it was just it was like it was just interpreted through that like a very progressivist kind of lens, and and I'm not saying that like he's wrong. Like, do I believe that God would have would have like um, sent his Christ to the womb of an unwilling participant. I mean, I, I don't think so. Right. And do I believe that God knew Mary that he actually chose her because there was no question about her consent? Yes. So is, does her consent in some way precede God telling her she's going to be impregnated with the Christ? Right. Well, logically. Yes. God does not force himself on Mary in this way. Like by, I mean, the interaction wasn't sexual, but it's still relative to her fertility and womb. Right. And yeah. so like, God knew of her consenting heart before it happened, right? So God isn't, I mean, there are some older people who believe this is actually how intimacy happens now, or like it's supposed to happen between men and women. It's like, you're not actually supposed to verbally have to say anything. You're supposed to just know by knowing them that you can kiss them and do whatever, right? Like it's supposed to be like based on interpersonal knowledge, and God, I mean, God knew Mary really well. He chose her because of her faithfulness and her heart, right? Mm-hmm. She's favored because of who she is, not because she's just a woman of childbearing age. There were plenty of them, right? right. So in that sense, like, I, I do think logically Mary's Mary's consent precedes Gabriel's arrival. Mm-hmm. So I don't mm-hmm. think that like, well, you know, if Mary hadn't have said yes, then God would have done it without her consent. Like, It's God almost an irrelevant yes. question. Right. It's like mm-hmm. – Right. right. So what I said, like, my sermon not was, yeah. what I said, my oh. sermon was, it's it's spiritually practical for us to recognize God is going to tell us, give us things in our lives that we did not consent to, and that could have been otherwise, that we can chalk up to providence. And in that sense, God will do things providentially in our lives without our consent. Mm-hmm. Right. So Mary wouldn't wouldn't have chosen this for herself. She wouldn't have known to cho- choose it for herself, just like we wouldn't choose early cancer for ourselves or something like that. Right. But there are things that will enter our lives under God's providence that we will not have chosen and that God does not ask our permission about. 
And yeah. it's, it's spiritually practical for us to, to look at that thing and to say to God, I consent mm-hmm. rather than yeah. to be embittered about what you weren't asked about. I, I, I consent or like, or I submit or I'm, right. yeah. you know, I'm the Lord's servant. Yeah. I'm the Lord's servant. Um, yeah. Annalise, did you have something to say? Maybe you didn't. Um, no, but I, I had a question for Nick when we. Yeah, go ahead. Well, to take it in a little bit of a different direction. Mm-hmm. And obviously none of us here are Catholic, but the point of the, not the Immaculate Conception, because that's Mary. Yeah, that's what but, Catholic, yeah, no, no, Mary, right? Okay. Clear, clear that up for people, Annalise. Do a little riff on that so people know the difference between okay, the Immaculate okay. Conception. So yeah, because you used the, the, the term Immaculate Conception earlier. Right. I, and I, the Immaculate mistake, Conception yeah. is the term that Catholics use. And I don't know if Orthodox use that term, but um, to describe Mary's conception, which they believe that she was also basically like conceived uh, without concupiscence is the language yeah. they use. So like the, 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 the kind of passion that is untoward and defiles us, which is normally included in sexual Congress was not involved in the union between Mary's parents. And so she was conceived immaculately. That is without the urgings of the flesh such that okay, original sin was passed through. along. Still through like the it was sexual through the act. intercourse of two people. Okay, she was with, without, through the intercourse of two people. Okay, okay. I actually, no, I actually didn't know that. I didn't know what they meant by immaculate. Yeah. I thought it was like yeah. they believed it was like the virgin birth part one or something. But right. no, it was like the, okay. The, the best of, I can understand what they mean is mm-hmm. that there's a certain kind of lust that accompanies passion, even in married sex. And that lust is what is called concupiscence, and it defiles the act and therefore the impregnation and, the, and it passes on sort of Adam's sin. So, but that word like defiles that, I feel like that undergirds a lot of the Catholic understanding of why, why Mary, like, okay, so we don't believe that Mary stayed a virgin. We believe that she had other children More and kids, yeah. Mary Joseph, yeah. right? But the fact that, or the idea that Mary stayed a virgin is so important in Catholic mm-hmm. theology because mm-hmm. they hold up virginity as being very, it's, they hold it up. It's kind of like with the, um, like monasticism and the high view of celibacy and things like that. So I was going to ask yeah. about that because that's not like you use the word defile. It's like, well, I wouldn't use that word when I'm talking about two married people having sex. Like it seems like, like it directly contradicts a lot of the new Testament in that the, the, you would th- tell me if I'm, I'm wrong thinking what, what trying to go off what you were saying on least, but that, that actually like when Paul says women will be saved through childbirth, that's not women will be saved through being a virgin. Like the, the, is that what you're trying to say? Like there seems to be like you some inconsistency. Like, like what, why the, why the insistence that mm-hmm. Mary's um, virtue, like is, is or her virginity is essential mm-hmm. to her virtue. And so, because if I say, well, I don't believe Mary stayed a virgin, that's right. very offensive because I'm yes. attacking her virtue in, mm. in their minds. And that's not at all what I intend to do. Like yeah. that would be attacking my virtue. Like, so yeah. what is right? Yeah, the normal Protestant would believe believes that if Mary did not have a sexual relationship with her husband after the birth of Jesus, that would be sinful. Correct. Based on like First right. Corinthians seven, right? Yeah. Whereas the the average Roman Catholic believes that there are certain events that happen that that cr- make something holy, 
And when that happens, it's changed. So, so in Roman Catholicism, the belief is, is that once Mary has the Christ, her like woman parts have been like profoundly consecrated in a way that like no other woman ever has been. And then it would be in a way to treat them then as normal again, which they could never be once you do that, that like her, like all of her woman parts, including her capacity to nurse. Right. And so that like, there was a certain reverence that like she and Joseph both felt about her sexuality after Jesus was born Gotcha. that to like, just go back to normal wasn't possible and shouldn't be done. Right. Almost like when you consecrate a church, it almost feels weird when like that church closes and it gets turned into a gift shop. It's like, yeah, it's a building. Yeah. You can use it for all kinds of things. You can do all kinds of things inside it. That's what buildings are, but it seems weird that it's a mosque now or like a coffee shop or a souvenir store. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? And so Roman Catholics believe that Mary and Joseph intuitively understood that and then did not proceed naturally with a sexual relationship as married people, which I don't find crazy, you know, like, well, and also the, the, under, so when I was in 2016, I went to Turkey and mm-hmm. No, 2017. And um, we did this tour through like a 500-year-old Eastern Orthodox um, monastery. Mm-hmm. And there were icons all over the wall. And they told a story of what they believe, the story of Mary and Joseph. Mm-hmm. And in the story of Mary and Joseph, at least according to Eastern Orthodox, I'm not as familiar with Catholicism as I am with Eastern Orthodoxy. But um, the story is that Joseph was actually an old man and that his marriage to Mary was almost like kind of more protection and like fatherly. Oh, And so that yeah. also is the framework that this is flowing out of, at least for yeah, Eastern Roman Orthodox. Catholics believe that also. Okay. Yeah. I want to, I want to so, say that they, that he was like a widower or something yes, like that. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's it. Right. Um, yeah. Which if that was true, then you could have a perpetually virgin Mary who had sons and daughters because they were from Joseph's other marriage. Correct. That she was raising, right? Okay, and I think so it's on. important, though, like, Nick. How, where did they get this? Where the where it says he did not know her until. Right, right. Luke does say that it said it literally says until, which makes you think that after that they did. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't. But anyway, so I just want people to know in their minds that the Annunciation is our reference to Gabriel saying you're going to be with child, and. Mm-hmm. Mary becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit. That's the Annunciation. The Immaculate Conception is not Jesus being conceived in Mary's womb, but is Mary's conception with her own parents when they had intercourse without concupiscence, which made Mary have a different relationship to original sin and therefore could be the God bearer, the mother of God. Because the assumption well, because is they if, believe if she was Mar- sinless. Right. She didn't if have the if nature- Mary was subject to original sin the same way everybody else was, then you couldn't have the seed of the woman be without sin, without original sin. And so because of the doctrine of original sin, to have a sinless savior, you don't just need a savior that doesn't sin. You need one who is born not in the sin of Adam. You need a new, you need a new Eve. So how do do you get a new Eve? Right? Yeah. Nick, how do Protestants deal with, with, with that? I've wondered, like, that, that Christ was born to us, to sinner, to a sinner. It, that is Mary. I mean, I, I'm, I think she's a sinner. I think all Protestants think that she's a sinner. And so how, how, uh, how 
and I don't know if there's an actual theological answer to this or whatnot, but like, how did that not get passed down to Christ? Um, through, through birth. Yeah. Uh, like, I wonder the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So answer the question. There's a number of <laughs> possible solutions here, right? One, one yeah. is, is that we somehow agree with the Roman Catholics and Orthodox folks. Mm-hmm. That's not the tack I take. The second is, is that Jesus was born with the same proclivities towards sin as any other human being. Therefore he could be our great high priest. He just didn't sin. And therefore the idea that Adam's guilt. So, so this gets back to the question of original sin is original sin that indwelling sin, or that is the propensity of the flesh to sin is something we receive through Adam, but we don't receive Adam's guilt. Right. So, but I, I believe, I believe we receive Adam's guilt. So that's why it's a, yeah, which is, if you believe me. in federalism, like that Adam is our moral head and that we receive Adam's guilt, it becomes a thornier problem. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I, b- I believe in Adam's guilt, which is why I also believe in Christ's imputed righteousness. Like the two. <laughs> right. Well, but you can, you can believe in Christ's imputed righteousness through the doctrine of union with Christ. That because mm-hmm. you are in spiritual union with Christ, all that is his is yours and all that is yours is his. And so yeah. imputation can be established through the doctrine of union, not just the doctrine of um, federalism or like that, that there's an exchange right. of your, your family, your, your family patriarch, so to speak. Does that make sense? Right. So, um, yeah, I favor that. However, I mean, I, the, 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 whether or not we receive the guilt of Adam, as far as I can tell, is an assertion. And is either true or false. And I can't prove it true or false philosophically or morally. If it if it's true, it's true. And if it's false, it's false. And I don't know how to determine that. It does seem like there is some relationship of guilt that is connected with indwelling sin. Can I clarify just for people who are like, where what direction did they go in? Yeah. Yeah. The conversation that we're having now is do we sin because we're sinners? Or are we sinners because we because sin? We're sin? Mm-hmm. Does sin flow out of our sinful nature and guilt that we inherit from Adam? Or do we become sinners because of our proclivity to sin and we say yes and we right. act on it? And okay, therefore, so what kind of savior would Jesus need to be? And therefore, what kind of mother would right. he need to have? So where do you guys both stand on? Uh, like, where do you guys both specifically stand? Are we, do, do we sin because we're sinners or are we sinners because we've sinned? Uh, I mean, speci- where uh-huh. do you both Honestly, yeah. starting with you, where, where do you stand here? I believe that we sin because we are sinners. Okay. And Nick? I believe we're sinners because we sin. However, I also believe we're sinners. So we're sinners because we sin. We, we sin because we're sinners. <laughs> I agree with that in that I believe that we have like what the Apostle Paul calls the flesh. But I don't know that that means we have we carry damning guilt into the world. Oh, so, okay. So then what I, I don't agree with total that. depravity. I'm not and sure I that I use that word just, because just to be clear, I don't not believe it. Okay. <laughs> this is one of those questions like, what do you know enough to affirm? Right? Yeah. I don't know how sin gets passed down. I know it does get passed down. I know what yeah. it produces in every human person is the ratification of sin. And I, and I know therefore that salvation is not just judicial, but has to be like, like in you. Like you have to yeah. be changed because you, in yourself, you, you are a sinner, right? Whether or not we have damnable guilt stamped on us from birth, I don't know. 
Well then, okay, Nick, but I okay. don't, I don't, but I, I don't, re, I don't refute it. You're saying you I don't can't say prove don't it true or false. Right. Correct. I, I feel like that's it's a probably because practically as a pastor, I don't need the doctrine of original sin to condemn the sinner. Like, it's not like I have to, like, I've never come across a person where it's just like, well, no, I've never done any of those Bible sins. And I'm like, my heart's always been entirely pure. And like, my mouth doesn't rush into evil. And I was like, well, but you do have this in Adam. So you should come to Jesus. Like, I've, I've never come across a human being where that was necessary. I'm, that doesn't make it false. It may be deductively true if I reason theologically correctly. I just, I don't know the answer to that. What I know is, is that the, establishing the need of Christ in people has never required that in my experience. Does that make sense? That's all I'm saying. Okay, I, let me bring around to this application. Sometimes I think Protestants are very hard on Catholics for doctrines that we think are buck nuts, like extrapolations. Where do you get this crap? But it's actually theological reasoning. They're like, okay, wait. If we have Adam's sin, Jesus can't have Adam's sin when he comes into the world. Mm-hmm. But if we get Adam's sin from our parents, how does Jesus come into the world as a human person? Without right. it. Mm-hmm. Right? And well, they, what the reason is something happened with Mary to make that possible. Right? Now, I might argue that, that Adam's sin isn't as metaphysical as we sometimes may think, but that it's more functional and practical. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so we've, we've like, sometimes our theology, we, we make things metaphysical or like we, t- we spiritualize them too much rather than pointing to their functional practicality that like we seem to be programmed to be selfish and say, I'm God. And mm-hmm. maybe that has to do with our limitedness and our senses. And if we're not connected to God with the true knowledge of good and evil, then we're, we're naturally prone to that and are going to do it. And so when Adam and Eve fell and they weren't rightly ordered under the knowledge of good and evil, that created a dynamic that couldn't be broken such that we would think we were gods and therefore we would sin. And that was like built into us, right? It also could be that like because because God doesn't have sex with Mary, it could be that Jesus is not genetically connected to Mary. That the entire zygote uh, that oh. Mary bears yeah. the son of God, but that like so this is like, like this like they, and they didn't know exactly scientifically how to grapple with this in the first century, right? Cuz they didn't really they thought that the man's sperm was a seed, right? Like and the woman's womb was like a field was like gave the fertility. They didn't really understand that like an egg and a sperm came together and made a zygote, right? So it could be that God supplies the zygote and Mary carries the child, right? And so then Jesus is separate from the line of Adam Mm -hmm. because he's actually separate from the line of Mary. But it says he came from the line of David, right? That that's an important, in Matthew, that's a very important. Yeah, but that gets back to like, in what situations is something credited and is in what situations is it literally true right yeah yeah because even luke is ambiguous as to whether the virgin or the man she's betrothed to is of the line of david or whether it's both oh and nobody knows but like either joseph or mary was in the line of david it's more likely well so but joseph Joseph because that's how it's credited okay but they go to register in joseph's hometown right. the city of david right yeah. We, yeah at least joseph is in the line of david whether mary is too okay, is okay. the question That's a, okay right. mm-hmm. yeah yeah okay um, okay oh go ahead sorry yeah oh i was gonna say that's actually and i hadn't even articulated this but that was kind of the position i had taken mentally was right. well i had wondered does jesus like have shared features with mary right because 
And that, I don't know. We don't know. Yeah. But right. And if there's no human father, would he have looked like a spitting image of her? Oh, as a man, but just a man, because there's no, there's no mixture in terms of human genetics. So if he gets his human genetics from Mary, right. We don't know. We have no idea. Well, do you think God could have imputed? I mean, obviously he could have done this, but this speculation, but that guy could have imputed some of Joseph's physical appearance into into Christ. God can do whatever he wants. Like that. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, but I that's pure know. speculation. Okay, so I so here's yeah. how. Let's bring this back to Mary. You can see how when you start thinking theologically about Jesus, Mary can become a very philosophically fascinating person too. Mm-hmm. So she's fascinating as a hero. Like a consenting, embracing person of a difficult calling. But then you also begin to see how she becomes fascinating as a theological figure, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is really what made Mary famous. It's actually the second, not the first. Because you'd be like, oh, it's the story, Mary. It's not. No, what happened was this. In the, in the um, second and third centuries, people were so focused on the divinity of Jesus and showing among the pagan peoples that Jesus was fully divine, that they started speaking of Jesus as divine in ways that undermined his humanity. And you began to get the first major Christological controversies. Like, how is Jesus the God man? And he was so much God that it was like he wasn't man anymore. And so you begin to get like, and so the most famous one was Arianism, which the Council of um, Nicaea faced in 325. Now, it was after Nicaea that Mariology really began, where Mary Mm -hmm. became significant because what, what do you do when everybody's making Jesus, quote, too divine? So as he's not really human. Well, it draws you to the most human features of Jesus. Well, what's the most human feature of Jesus? He came out of a womb as a baby. What could be more human and not seemingly divine than that? So the nativity of Jesus became increasingly theologically important as you move past 325. And that's also why Christmas became a much more interesting and important Christian celebration in the fourth century and later. Before the 300s, Christmas, the, the celebration of the nativity was happening, but it wasn't like this enormous, like major holiday. It became much more significant as we were sorting out the Christological controversies, showing how human Jesus was, fully human as well as fully God. And then people were sort of trying to engage in the mystery of that paradox. As they did that, Mary, the nativity became, and that's how Mary got the nickname, the Theotokos, the God bearer. That is that she bore the son of God. What it literally means is she's the bearer of God. And the reason they chose that, because some people said, no, we should call her the Christotokos, the Christ bearer, because the child she bore became the Christ. And they said, nope, because the heretics can say yes to that. What the Orthodox believe is, is that the child that Mary, Mary bore is God. And that's a paradox. And if you can't accept that paradox, you're not a Christian. Jesus is fully human. He's born from Mary and he is God. And so the unthinkable has happened. The Virgin Mary has become the bearer of God. And you have to Which say- Which I think yes we as Protestants should use that language. We should say Mary, mother of God. Right. We, we are affirming something that, yeah, it's we're true. affirming the deity of Christ. It's not even about Mary. Right. Ultimately. Right. Yeah. So- mm-hmm. Right. So when I, when I, I, when I was doing the series, I, I emailed my Orthodox priest friend and I said, hey- What's, what's the stuff you believe about Mary that I probably don't that you think matters, right? And he emailed me okay. back a wiki link to the Council of Ephesus. Like I didn't believe that. And it was like basically uh-huh. where they declare, declare Mary yeah. the Theotokos. And she's like, he's like, this is what's important to us, that Mary is the Theotokos. And I'm like, yeah, I, I believe <laughs> I believe that. Yeah. You know? yeah. I don't pray to her, but like, 
And when I did, I, when I went to a conference, there were three worship services going on at the same time. There was a Roman Catholic one, a Greek Orthodox one, and a Protestant one. And the whole conference was talking about God all day long. And so I didn't want a, a worship service that was mostly just people talking about God. I wanted to like literally adore God himself in prayer and worship. And so, and I knew I couldn't really agree with the Catholic one. So I went to the Orthodox one and they were actually doing the mass for the veneration of the Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. So it was all prayers to Mary. And there were about four lines I couldn't say. Most of it was adoring Christ in relationship to his relationship with Mary. And it all worked theologically for me as a Protestant. And then there were a couple of lines where I was like, right. they were directed as prayers to Mary. And I was like, oh, I can't say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was amazing yeah. how much I could say in that worship service with the Orthodox. Well, I think the Eastern Orthodox, I mean, like I said earlier, I know way more about Eastern Orthodoxy than I have very, very close Eastern Orthodox friends who converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. So that's how I know. Yeah. Um, when I have learned about their theology, I'm like, oh, I am so much more on board with most of this than Catholicism. Yeah. Like because that. of the schism, maybe in the 10 hundreds, it was like the, the Orthodox kind of kept the things I don't agree with, but didn't add too many more things. And then the Roman Catholic church kept continuing to pile on what I would consider yeah. to be heresies. Does, does that make sense? Like, I think yeah, there are I, way I more. Like, okay. So this is my opinion. Of course, I'm a Protestant. I grew up Catholic, but I feel like the Roman church moved in the direction of um, reordering their authority and spirituality was seemed like more important in the Eastern church. And so the Eastern church is like less right. doctrinal, much more, more mystical. Sp- spiritual and mystical. Right. And so they don't hold stuff as hard. They're not like, nope, freaking this or you're out, man. It's like, it's much more fluid in that sense. And they, I, th- yeah, so I, I, I tend to agree, but like, yeah, anyway, I'll just, I'll leave that there. Yeah. But I, well, but okay. I think this helps you understand how Mary became kind of this mm-hmm. rock star. I, one of the things I do see is like, I, I, I've been, I've been reading a bit more on exorcisms recently and I've been reading some of the Catholic stuff cause they've been doing this stuff for a long time. It's surprising to me. Like they basically believe Mary is in charge of spiritual warfare. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think I get on board with that. Like, well, so, so there I are, just wonder I mean, there where, are where a lot of this stuff, Mary, there's definitely big roles of Mary mm-hmm. in the Roman Catholic church that I just, I just can't get on board with, but right. a lot of it is not official doctrine in Roman Catholicism. It's like lore and Mariology. That's kind of, yeah. Or practical theology. Like when these exorcists say, look, our experiences is that when we pray to the Virgin Mary, there are some demons that just like leave immediately because they're terrified. And we don't know why, but man, it works. And I'm, and I'm like, well, okay, whatever. I mean, like, that sounds weird. But, but like when I sit down with a Catholic bishop in my town and talk, and I'm like, hey, what do you think about this? He's like, that's not Catholic doctrine. <laughs> like, it's the first uh-huh. thing he says. It's like, that is not Catholic doctrine. Yeah. Well, hold, hold on. What do they define? What, is, what do you define as Catholic doctrine? Or what does he define as Catholic doctrine? Because there's a lot uh, of this the catechism, stuff in the catechism and the teaching of the magisterium. Yeah. So well, there's yeah, a, I mean, like, Trent and yeah. Well, read the read through the catechism. Like, it, there's a lot of this stuff is in in that in yeah. the catechism. Oh yeah, and so I mean, this, that would I'm be considered doctrine. So what's frustrating though is that when you talk to Catholics, they'll be like, "Yeah, that's not technically what we believe," but it's like, no, it like literally is technically what you believe because it's in your it's in oh, your yeah. documentation well, it's in the of your doctrine. They do believe it, or are yes. supposed. But, but, but a lot here's of, the other thing, yeah. Andy, is that. Catholicism has meshed so syncretistically with a lot of like subcultures. So for instance, in Arizona, there's a lot of Mexican Catholics. And so their Catholicism and their view of Mary is Mm -hmm. it's, 
it's like almost mis- mixed with like Native American or like pagan spirituality. And that's mm-hmm. the case with Catholicism in a lot mm-hmm. of cultures. And so what comes out of that sometimes is like this pseudo Mexican Mary that probably doesn't resemble <laughs> yeah. the catechisms or whatever. Well, my mm-hmm. question then is this, because this is, uh, so we, my wife and I were at a wedding, a Catholic wedding, maybe a couple months ago. And the, the two people getting married, uh, they had to, the, the priest said, they, they basically just had to agree to all of the doctrines of the Catholic Church in order to get married. They, they had to do that in front of everybody. They had to say it and agree to all the, Catholic, the doctrines of the Catholic Church. Um, and they did it, like, without thought, which I was like, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I just wonder, like, at what point do you – at what point um, can you stray from doctrine – rather than a certain doctrine, rather than like, you don't have to necessarily know that you believe in it. We shouldn't overcorrect like, as Protestants. Right. I think that's the bit, that's the reason why we preached on Mary for this series is I thought the best thing to do if I didn't agree with the Roman Catholic church about Mary is to preach about how fantastic Mary is from a Protestant right. position. Right. Having a, not a, say, a, a Oh, Mary's bad. View. Don't yeah. talk about Mary. Like, yeah, yeah. Probably yeah. because like, she's listen, amazing. <laughs> she's <laughs> amazing. Mm-hmm. And we can't and afford we to not heroes. pay attention to any yeah. female hero in the Bible. Right. Like, like we need to really make sure every female hero in the Bible gets their full day in the sun because there's so mm-hmm. much, there's so much, there's so much like masculine care. There's so many masculine characters in the scriptures that like, you need to make sure that you really give every female character their full due. Yeah. Yeah. Well then uh, that's my next question kind of, well, kind of leads into like, okay, so we've talked a lot about Mary. We've talked a lot about um, her willing willingness to submit to God and, um, and her faithfulness and kind of th- these great characteristics that she has. Um, but, but obviously Christmas, and we've talked a lot about Christ, but Christmas is about the birth of Jesus. Um, so I guess as we wrap things up, I want to talk about why Mary, like m- Maybe this is a, a dumb question, but it feels like there's some sort of um, there's there's Mary had to submit to God and kind of and then go through the pain of giving birth to Christ. And um, and so I guess how do you connect Mary's uh, obedience and faithfulness to the importance of um, Jesus actually being born as the son of God on earth and us celebrating that now for the past 2000 years. Does that okay, make sense? I, I'm going to give, I'm going to give three things to prompt Annalise. Okay. Ready Annalise? So here's the oh, three okay. things I'm going to give. One <laughs> is her submission, right? The second is we're, tr- we're twice told in the early chapters that she like ponders and treasures things. Like she, mm. she's in the present. She's looking at life. She's actually taking it in and enjoying it. And that's part of her spirituality. And then third is her strangely like, radical hospitality forced upon her there are always people inserting themselves into her child's life and she seems to receive them very graciously so like these wise men show up from who god knows where they're like hey we're looking for the christ child and like she's like this poor woman right like there's shepherds just show up she's probably still like bleeding and stuff from her delivery and she's like has to put her boob away and she's like hey guys come on these like are like literally like ruffians from the fields you know and they're like hey right. we heard this like a god baby you know and like and then later you've got like they go to the temple for like the circumcision the dedication these two like super old people come up to them that like everybody probably thinks are weird and they're like listen god told us some crazy stuff about it and she's like yeah hold the baby it's cool like <laughs> and she's just like they're all they all she seems to have this like hospitable attitude Toward the only yeah, time she doesn't is when she, Jesus seems to be working himself to death early in his ministry. 
And she's afraid he's like literally going to go crazy because he's giving himself to other people so absolutely. What I think is fascinating is like, okay, we look back and we read the story of Mary from the time that the, the, the birth or the conception is announced to the resurrection of Christ. And so we see the full picture. Mary wasn't aware of all that. She was given pieces of revelation about what was going on. And she was conscious of a divine thing taking place mm-hmm. and her role in that. But she's like walking along, like she's walking through it yeah. in a way that we can look back and we can see. So like when Jesus is what he's, uh, they go for the feast of what, what feast is it? Where Jesus is talking to um, the teachers and then yeah. he doesn't come back with the caravan and Mary and Joseph start to get worried mm. And he's like, I need to be about my father's business. And I'm just wondering what was going through Mary's mind at that time? Because she's humanly worried for her child, who she also knows is God. To what extent does she know that? To what extent does she know this is the son of God? Right. And it was the Passover. So it was the busiest busiest festival in Jerusalem. And I'm also like, why wasn't she worried earlier? Like for me as a mother, I'm just like, whoa, like she's chill. But (laughs) it's like, to what extent did she understand what she was taking place in? To put this in context, Jesus was missing from Mary, the God bearer, longer than the entire movie of Home Alone. You're saying longer, not not like two hours, an hour and a half. You're saying like longer than. No, no, it's a joke. The storyline of Home Alone is like three days, right? Yeah. Oh, right? okay. And Mary is missing Jesus longer than that and doesn't know it. Right? The mom at home alone realizes it and is trying to get home. Yeah. 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 But I think I think that this is like people don't get the dynamic of extended family anymore. That like yeah, they probably came down with people trusts. from Nazareth. Yeah. That's like 70 miles. Right? Wow. And it's a whole big group of people. There's lots of kids. Right? So Jesus is screwing around with like John the Baptist and like whoever, who, who God knows who, right? And yeah. <laughs> they're just all traveling together. So Mary's like talking with the other ladies and you know, they're making their way and they do it every yeah. year. I mean, it's an annual thing. They've done it like 12 times. They've never lost Jesus before. Right. And then this, all of a sudden he's like 12, he's like bar mitzvah age almost. And he's like old enough to just hang out with the teachers and he kind of loses track of time or something. I don't know, but like, yeah. it's yeah. kind of funny. But yeah. to me, that's just, that's notable. So yeah. like yeah. what, what's going through her mind? Obviously we don't know, but. You know, uh, Simeon says, he gives that now let your servant depart in peace. And he talks to Mary and he says, a sword will pierce your own heart. Mm-hmm. It's like, she doesn't know that he's going to be born to die. And- yeah. Right. And I, I like in my sermon, I was like, you guys, we take that way too euphemistically. Like Simeon is saying, you are going to be run through with a sword. Like you need to imagine Mary having a like sword run through her sternum. And her blood gushing everywhere. Like, this is what it's going to feel like. Like, we go, oh, yeah. the sword is going to pierce you. It's going to feel bad. Yeah, it's like, super. It's a very brutal metaphor. Metaphysical. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I think one of the things I like about this, uh, and I know we talked about it a little bit, but about the story, this story and obviously about the birth of Christ, but more specifically about Mary's role in that is all, I guess, all the parallels between Mary and, and Christ as, as, um, like you talked about at the beginning, Nick, the, the kind of the universal um, rule, uh, the, the Christian universal rule of submission to God. Like it's it's not that's not like 
only women have to submit or only men have to submit. Like we, mm-hmm. we were all like when Jesus says, you know, not my will, but yours be done or but yours be done. Like take this cup. Like I, I'm willing to submit and, and Mary doing the exact same thing. I think, um, in, in a different context, um, I just think that that's probably something obviously submission to, to God and, and his will is, is lost, um, in non-believers, but I, I mean, I think that it's, it, it can get lost in Christians. Like we, we, we are more focused on making sure that we're controlling every little aspect of our life. And when God comes out of nowhere and kind of is like, Hey, no, I want you to go, go this direction. Uh, it feels like a lot of people are more willing to debate God, uh, rather than just say, I don't, I might not totally understand how this is going to work out, but I'm, I'm, I'm your servant. And I think, yeah. That's that was all that was kind of the main takeaway for me from from the sermon was that this is not there wasn't a bunch of, you know, Mary didn't sit there and try to negotiate with God. I mean, Jesus didn't sit there before he went to the cross and was like, well, there's a couple of other ways that we could do this. Let's like talk through this. And Mm -hmm. he was just like, no, I'm going to just submit to you. And and I think I think that's just an, an important reminder as a Christian that like, you don't you don't really have the luxury of of negotiating the terms with God. He's set the yeah. terms and you got to just yeah. do it um, regardless. Yeah. So. One of the things I like about this story about Mary and the Annunciation too is, is that we, in modern psychological terms, we would say that Mary was in an altered state of consciousness or she was quote triggered. Cause like when the angel shows up, it says like, she's worried. Like she does not know what's happening. She doesn't know yeah. what this means. Whether mm-hmm. like she doesn't know for sure if she's going to be struck dead or what. Mm-hmm. And so she like to put it in modern terms, like her body's probably full of adrenaline. Like she's not like in this calm state where if somebody said, Hey, listen, hypothetically, if the Christ child is going to be born through you, would you be okay with that? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Like this happens like in real time. She's like mm-hmm. personally triggered. Her body's full of adrenaline. She's, she has all the physical manifestations of like really intense fear. And in that mental state, physically being told mentally your life is over publicly. She says, she asks a directly pertinent question for how she can obey and then gives her consent. Like that's pretty freaking awesome. I wonder if there parallels. Wow. Is there parallels to, to Moses and his uh, encounter with God in the burning bush? Yeah. He does worse than Mary. Oh yeah, for sure. Mary basically puts every, there's, there's nobody who does better than Mary. There's, there's like, there's nobody in the Bible that God comes to and says, do we're going to do X and they do better than Mary. There might be somebody who's like as good as Mary, or you might be like, well, so-and-so had to do more stuff over a longer period of time that like, I mean, technically Jesus doesn't do better than Mary in the garden. You could say like, well, he's literally going to the cross. Like that's, it's imminent. It's a bigger deal. It makes sense. Right. And that's fine. Like, I don't think Mary's better than Jesus, but like, you just can't do better than Mary. Mary is like the archetype. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. it's important. I think that we can learn that, that from, from, I'm sure God chose her because like I said, he knew that she was going to be so willing to, to submit and to, to do what she, yeah. uh, what he asks. And, and I think, that, it's, I think, sorry, go ahead. Okay, well, I was just say that can just be a lesson, a lesson to us. Like you want, you want, like, if you want some sort of responsibility from God, or if you want some sort of, um, I don't know, just to grow in your faith more. Mm-hmm. Like I just always try to take the attitude of Mary where it's like, okay, yeah. whatever God puts in your path, right. don't sit there and psychoanalyze it, you know, right. For, do, do it. Yeah. Do it. I, I also think it's important to point out that like Mary isn't depicted as literally perfect. 
right? Like, and it also seems there's a couple interactions that seem a little strange, like the, the Canon Galilee situation. That one's a little weird where like, she's just like, Hey Jesus, they don't have any more wine. And he's like, like, it's not my time. And she's like, well, <laughs> can you help him anyway? Miraculously. So like, she knows that he's capable of miracles, right? She like literally knows he can do something about it, but he literally has not done a single miracle yet. Yeah. Right now think about oh, that. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. He, she's like, she's somehow she knows and he hasn't done a public miracle yet. Right. Yeah. And so she goes to him and he's, and then she just tells the people just do whatever he says. Cause she knows he's going to do it. Right. <laughs> Which I and, guess from the Catholic perspective, that makes sense uh, why they'd be like, um, Jesus listened to Mary. Mary That's right. a pretty good deal. <laughs> yeah. There's no, there is no better biblical example of why you would pray to Mary. If Mary could hear you. Right. If you assume Mary can hear you wherever she is, like it is clear that Jesus did listen to her. Right. But then, and then there's the time where she's concerned that he's going to be like lose his mind because his ministry is so intense in Mark's gospel. Like it's like, it's so intense that he can't even speak on a, on a shore of the Sea of Galilee. They have to put him in a boat and put him out into the water so that people won't crush each other, crush him and drown him. And Mary's looking at him, like speaking constantly and doing this ministry and like, and she's phys- worried about his physical health. She's like, mm-hmm. and, and she's his mental mom. health. Like, right. right. Mm-hmm. She's and the she, only one that has that relationship of crisis. Yeah. This is my son and my savior. Yeah. Right. But she's going to operate like a mom as long as he's. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I also, and then you see, and then you see her at the cross. So she's, yeah. so she's there all the way through. And she also, there seems to yeah. be this development of this sorority of the moms of Jesus followers where they like, they know each other and like, they're, they're like at some of them are at the cross. They go together to his tomb and partly because they're not men, but partly because they're so devoted. They're there at the cross. They go to take care of his dead body and then they become major figures in the story of his resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 well, when you were talking about Jesus listening to Mary, um, one thing I thought of is just that like, Jesus also wanted to, I, I assume his, one of his goals was to like honor his mother and father too. I mean, it, it might, maybe yeah. that doesn't say anything about the significance of Mary. Maybe it just says that Jesus was focused on like, Hey, this is something that my mom wants and I need to, to obey. I need to respect her like he's and fulfilling honor her. the law to honor yeah. your father and mother in that right. moment. Right. right. And he, cause he's not going yeah. necessarily against any command of God. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, there's a number of people in church history who they will say that event, Cana Galilee, is what is celebrated on January 6th, Epiphany. The Epiphany means like oh, manifestation. Where they throw the, in Orthodoxy, they throw the crosses into the water and then they go swim and grab them. And Well, they yeah, don't do no, that here thing. because the water's frozen. <laughs> okay. So I live in Arizona, but yes, the, they do do that. There's a, yeah. The Orthodox people that so do some that people here. say anyway. Epiphany is when, the, so in the Orthodox Church, usually it's when the wise men have arrived. Um, that does sound like a fun ritual, though, throwing crosses in water and swimming after them. But the idea is like, when does Jesus, because so he's born on December 25th, let's say. And then when does he become, quote, manifest? Like, when does the child born in the manger, is when does he, is he shown to be God? Hmm. And the argument is that he's baptized when he's still 29 by John. Because he can't be the rabbi until he's 30 years old. He then goes into the desert for his preparation. That's 40 days, right? Then there's four to seven days where he is tempted by Satan after his 40 days of fasting. Like if you don't take a direct, immediate, supernatural approach to that, right? So somewhere between like late fall when he would have been baptized and epiphany, he turns 30. 
which means okay. December 25th may very well be the day, right? So he turns, so if, you know, like he gets baptized on October 18th, let's say, 40 days plus seven days, it's December 25th. He turns 30. He gets his first disciples. On the 6th, he goes to a wedding with his mom and his disciples. And she says, hey, they don't have any more wine. And he turns water into wine. And he, that's epiphany. That's one way to reconstruct the the events of Jesus, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And hence it being so early in John's gospel. Yeah. Okay, so so before we move into the next thing that we're going to talk about, I want to c- conclude this this conversation about Mary and about Jesus and about Christmas um, in this way. Uh, so both of you, I want you guys to, I don't know, give a couple, maybe one or two like practical applications to people. Like, what 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 should they take away from this podcast in the sense of like how what should they take away from the story of Mary, and and uh, why is that important to Christmas? And so I'll start with Nick because he probably has more prep. Um, and then Annalise, you'll you'll, yeah. you'll go after. What are you and then Annalise is what people will remember, <laughs> which is what we're shooting for, right? Yeah. So for me, it's those things. It is um, Mary's capacity to submit to God, even when in the worst physiological state of being like triggered and afraid and like having your, like everything running through, like to be able to be so in control of what you believe and know who you are, that you, your stewards are still, yes, God, absolutely. I think her um, her ability to be in the moment in the life of Jesus, knowing it's going to be hard and difficult, mm-hmm. but every every moment where something beautiful happens, she treasures it into her heart. She takes it in, she drinks it in in perception, mm-hmm. and then she she like ruminates on it later in the positive sense, where she like she like treasures it and then she ponders it. That she has this relationship with God in the real actions of her life, where she brings stuff in and then she thinks it over in a like a holy mm-hmm. kind of way. And then I also think her acceptance of the public nature of her life, that like her her spirituality is drawing her into a public life she would have never had and probably never would have wanted. And she accepts that, mm-hmm. right? Like any like a pastor's wife might accept their her life being changed like that, or any parent who has like a popular or famous kid, and they kind of get drawn into that whatever publicity that child has. Um, you could see that with Mary that she like she just she has to accept that, and that's hard for a mother to share your child with the world. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why the Pieta, where where Mary's holding Jesus' body just after it's come down from the cross, it's not just that that's like a great piece of art, but one of the reasons why it was created and it's revered within Catholic circles is that this is like this fundamental thing. Mary had to give her child to the for the good of the world, and in mm-hmm. some ways, every mother has to do that. They have to raise their child with all of their love and care so that they can be a blessing to the world. And then they have to give them to the world. And as a, as a pastor who's pastored parents who have, their kids have gone to the mission field. Like that's an incredibly painful and difficult thing to do. But in some ways we all have to do it as parents and mothers in particular. Mm -hmm. And Mary seemed to have done that really well. She was still with him. Mm -hmm. She shows up in these places. She's there, but he belongs to them and to what he's been called to do. She seemed to put the the correct emotional, uh, oftentimes put a correct emotional response. Like she was, she was emotionally stable. I mean, it feels like she was emotionally stable because the, it, I can imagine how difficult it could be. Like you're saying to send your kid off to, um, to, to, to the mission field and to some of the worst places in the world. You know, there's always a chance that they could get killed or arrested or something like that. Mm-hmm. And like, and she sent her, you know, she was okay with sending her son off to like, 
go die for the sins of the world. And yeah, I mean, I mean, imagine a mom, you raise your son and he goes in the military or becomes a police officer yeah, right, or becomes a missionary right. or a bush pilot or like, or right. like a doctor, a, a traveling doctor or a nurse mm-hmm. or something like there's, there's ways in which yeah. like that professionally, you kind of see that happen in people's lives. But yeah. if this is metaphorically true. Like Annalise is raising a, a little boy who's going to be a man who's going to enter the world and leave her in a lot of ways. Like he's not going to live in her basement forever. He's going to like go out and do some thing he was made to do. We have no idea what that is. It's probably a, to make a family and stuff. Mm-hmm. But every mother still is like, but for, for but there's a certain way in which you get drawn into the publicity of your child, where your mm-hmm. child is like a lightning rod or a thing, like something's happening, and you get drawn into that, and that can be really difficult and painful. And Mary mm-hmm. seems to try to treasure and ponder what she can, and then just like let go what she. Well, can. she is full of they, you know, Mary full of grace, like, and that is the word that comes to mind. She's gracious mm-hmm. with that publicity, and she's grace gracious with that uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. So Annalise, what are your uh, I mean, practical Nick applications? covered pretty much, but the other thing that came to my mind was <laughs> that it's okay to have heroes in scripture. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we're hesitant, especially as Protestants, because we're like, Jesus is the only good guy in the story. And I would argue that biblically God puts good guys like, and we yeah. are supposed to look and go, wow, that's amazing. And so for instance, when we look at Joseph, Joseph is a man of integrity. Joseph is someone you want to emulate. Was he perfect? No, we're not saying they're perfect, mm-hmm. but it's, he's a true hero in, in the true sense of the word. One, he's a type of Christ, but like he's a true yeah. hero and it's okay to have heroes in scripture. You're not diminishing the glory of God or you're not. I think sometimes people want to overcorrect and be like hyper redemptive historical in their reading of things to where they're like mm-hmm. this, this, there are no good guys in the story and all points to Christ. And while I do believe all of scripture points to Christ, mm-hmm. there are it is also heroes. itself. Yeah. 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 The Bible and is the least canceling the whole, book the whole of all time in, in <laughs> Hebrews uh, 11. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and it has some people in there too, that we'd be like, mm, I didn't know that they were a hero. <laughs> right. Like um, Samson. Like Samson, but Samson ended well. Right. Samson, he demonstrated what it is to end well and to go out with a bang. And Mm -hmm. like, yeah. So like have heroes and try to be like them. There's Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. (laughs) Right. And and all those Hebrews 11 uh, characters, people um, that uh, what they have in common with um, Mary is the, this great faithfulness. And I think that that's a, that's a Christian word that gets like thrown around often, like be faithful, be, have faith. And it's, and it, in some ways it can like lose its meaning after you've been a Christian for maybe like three or four years. Cause you're just like, yeah, I have faith. That's just part of the deal. But it's like these people, they, they were counted righteous because of their great, they were faithful to God and they're, they're faithful to, to what they believed in. Mary was like, you're saying she was super afraid and yet Mm -hmm. she was like, no, I'm going to be faithful and I'm, I'm going to do what God told me to do. And I think that that's like growing in faithfulness is part of the sanctification, your sanctification. It's not that you don't just get faith. Like you get faith, but like you can grow in faithfulness. It's something you can, you you can can have more faithfulness. You can, you can submit to God in more ways. And, and, and so I think that that's that's a really good point. Well, I I think, I don't, I think Mary is, is in some ways a not, she's not a tragic figure because of sin, right? She's a tragic figure because of pain. But I think one of the things that like Annalise used the example of Joseph, is that he said, it's like you're, so like, there's, there's, there's like three people in the Bible of whom nothing negative is said. Joseph is one of them. 
Daniel is one of them, right? Obviously Jesus, right? We're talking and, about Joseph um, in the Old Testament for anyone who was confused. Oh yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, Joseph in the Old Testament. So like the, the issue, part of the issue too is, is that like all the other heroes in the Bible are also tragic too. They're, they also make mistakes. They do yeah, things sometimes David really is. terrible things. And they're all good hero material as well. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think you refer to Unleashed as like, the, like in he, like in Hebrew is 11. There's like, there's people in there that you're like, okay, Rahab's a prostitute. Samson, like mostly screwed up. He just like had a great moment there at the end. Like, and like these people get counted as people of faith. So our heroes in the Bible then are both positive figures to emulate, but also tragic figures where we don't want to be like them in certain ways. Right. And that interchange of like how we want to be like them and not like them and how in the areas we don't want to be like them, there are other heroes to emulate in those areas, having like a constellation of biblical heroes is really important. Yeah. And then to see how all their best qualities point to Christ and how their worst qualities are ways in which they were not conformed to Christ uh, gives like a really rich feeling to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's simple. It's like the greatest heroes that we know about are the ones you don't, you don't want a hero who never ever has to d- deal with anything difficult. You, you want a hero who like is kind of jacked up and, you know, it's like, I think of like Han Solo in star Wars. You're kind of like, he starts as this dude who's just like, he's scum. He's like, you know, he's rebel scum. He, he's, he's not a good guy. And by the end of it, He's the, he's one of the main heroes in Star Wars because he's he gave up his past life of just doing whatever he wanted for himself all the time. And he found friendship and he found kind of a family within the, the rebellion and decided to risk his life for the rebellion. And I think uh, you don't want these char- you don't want bi- all your biblical characters to um, not have flaws because otherwise we would have nothing to to look to like us as human beings we would just be like okay well i can't be like these guys because they're perfect yeah and mary's one of the reasons i think people don't take as much from mary as they can is she pops up here and there through the gospels Mm -hmm. and there's more than one mary so not people aren't always sure when it's the mary the mother of jesus either and so it's it's like it takes a little work to piece together her story but we at least have her story of the nativity and even just that thing alone is really great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, let's move in. So let's move in. Nick texted me like a couple of days ago and was like, you were saying how you were doing research on Christmas, December 25th and the significance. Um, and, uh, it kind of revolved around how I I have some friends even who don't celebrate Christmas because they believe it's a pagan holiday. Mm -hmm. So, Let's just do like a couple minutes of like, I don't know. You know how Ben Shapiro has like debunked. <laughs> this is yeah. this is Nick, Nick Gibson debunked. Nick Gibson. <laughs> so tell us why people should celebrate Christmas and it's not this pagan, terrible pagan holiday. Yeah. So one of the things I find really interesting about both this argument about Easter and Christmas, that they're basically just like rewarmed over like fertility or sun God celebrations and that Jesus is there for just like them is that these slanders were anti-Catholic slanders of English Protestants. That's where these arguments come from. So like for East and Easter, it was like this like, like non-educated congregational preacher guy from like Scotland. That's all on the podcast we did on that. In this case, it was the Puritans, right? So um, the idea that Christians celebrated Christmas on December 25th because it like overlaid a pagan holiday is first found in the 12th century in the marginal reading of a Syrian manuscript where a, a, a Eastern Orthodox scribe is trying to make sense of why does the Western church celebrate Christmas on December 25th rather than the proper date, 
January 6th is what they thought, right? And he's like, it's probably because they wanted to overwrite the summer, the winter solstice. That makes sense. And it made sense to him. But that really just tells us about what a scribe in the 12th century thought. Because he doesn't have, there's, he's not citing anything about where he gets that information from. But then later in the in the Puritan period in England, when the Puritans are like taking over England and losing, they see that as a as a part of, quote, popishness. Because the veneration of Mary is connected to Catholicism and the nativity is closely connected to Mary, they start outlawing it such that like in the era of Cromwell, Christmas or nativity celebrations were outlawed. You couldn't have church and you had to have your business open. Which is funny because like I'm like my line goes back to Plymouth Plantation. And so oh, like mine too. Yeah. So like these are my people that did that, right? And I'm like, oh crap. But like, but that's that's where this comes from. And so then that idea then got filtered through to the like average like first semester college student who's smoking a lot of weed is like, dude, don't you know that it's like a cult, man? <laughs> Literally, you're repeating a Puritan idea. Like that's the kind of the irony of it, right? Is like they would be like, I hate the Puritans. They're like, well, this is their idea, right? So the way this functions historically is that every ancient pagan society, every single one had some god of the sun, a sun god temple, and some celebration around the sun god. It made sense for those celebrations to be on the summer solstice, June 21st, or the winter solstice, December 21st. But in some of the calendars, it was on the 25th of those months rather than the 21st, right? Now, in Rome, there were celebrations of the sun god throughout the year. The biggest one was in October. But in 274, an emperor named Aurelian um, decided to like really focus on the sun god in relationship to army victories and to demonstrate how he was himself a god. And so he reinstituted the Sol Invictus celebration throughout the year. It looks like most of the games were still in October. But there was some kind of celebration about the sun like re-rising like on the equinox. The problem is, is that by 274, it's more likely that he did this to try to stop Christianity than that Christianity picked December 25th to overplay him. Hmm. By then, Christianity was well was well instantiated in all the cities. The celebration of the, the nativity on December 25th was already being practiced. In fact, the emperor, I think two emperors before him um, burned a bunch of Christians alive in a church during the celebration of the nativity on December 25th. Hmm. Um, the date December 25th goes back at least to the second century. I'm sorry, the very, very beginning of the third century um, to two of two disciples of Clement of Alexandria. People say that Clement of Alexandria believed that Christmas should be January 6th. Um, but it's also possible that if you reroute his dating through the the calendar that was used in Athens, which was then transferred to Alexandria where Clement was from, that there's actually an eight day difference. And he actually meant the the 25th day of the 10th month. And remember the Romans start in March because it's the God of war. So December, right? DEC December means the 10th month, right? Even though for us, it's the 12th month, it's to them the 10th month. So like, it's possible that Clement actually meant December 25th, even though it was assumed based on what he said, that he meant January 6th. So it may be that it, for those three witnesses go back to like right around 200, which is really far back when Augustine was in conflict with the Donatists and they split off in 312. One of the things he noticed was that they celebrated Christmas or the celebration of the nativity on December 31st, but not Epiphany on January 6th. And he thought that that was like kind of irreligious, which means that that was the Donatists already believed that that was a thing before they split 
and that that tradition went far enough back that they weren't willing to change it. So there's a bunch of things that really point to the fact that Christians were celebrating Christmas on December 25th, way before Christians took over Rome and way before there could be any any question about why would they would choose December 25th. And there's also good evidence that the celebration of the sun God in that way under Illyrian came very late, probably to refute Christianity and to overlay them. And um, part of it was to show that the emperor was the son of the God, the God of the, the son of the sun God, hmm. so that the emperor could be in the place of Jesus, which of course Christians weren't into. Now there was some relationship because as late as the fifth century in one of um, Ambrose's sermons, he talks about Jesus being the true son, that is the one who brings light into the world and what the soul invictus could never do, what the sun God could never do. Like the, the sun could increase its rays over the course of the year, but he could never bring the light of salvation into the world, which only the son of God could do, which was Jesus the Christ and not the emperor. Right. And of course, Ambrose actually had like a history of confronting Christian emperors and making them like kneel in the snow and ask for forgiveness because Christ was higher than the emperor. So there was no syncretism in Ambrose, you know, but he saw Ambrose was great at turning a phrase. He was a great rhetorician and he saw the, 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 the interplay of the metaphor there. Does that make sense? So this idea that like we, we, the church selected December 25th to simply overlay a pagan holiday. There is no historical evidence for that. It is a slander that was created out of nowhere in the 12th century by a scribe. We know nothing about. And was revivified and like given life by Puritans because they were really frustrated that their English counterparts were ruining their lives by exiling them twice to the Netherlands and then to America. And so the Puritans took a very anti-Christmas or nativity celebration view. And that was kind of their shtick. Um, And then a lot of Americans sort of picked that up. And then as people wanted to be like anti-establishment and show that their parents' views were so stupid and whatever – they globbed onto some of these views that came either from the Puritans or like the Congregationalists. Or once um, like departments of religion grew up in the 19th century, it was very popular in the 19th century because we didn't know much about the ancient world, but we wanted to have a lot of views about it because archaeology hadn't figured out that much yet. But people had lots of theories. Their view was just like, well, every god is every other god. Like everything in humans has to evolve. There can't be revelation. So Jesus has to be some other gods. And so they just went through this like game of like, well, this God is that God. And this God is that God. And this God is that, uh-huh. God, and this God is that God. Until Jesus has to be Horus and Mithras and Boulder and basically Quetzalcoatl and like goes to the Gozerian from Ghostbusters. I mean, like, I mean, it's just like, he's, he's like every God, like obviously the Christians were like syncretistic to every God in the world, even though they came from the Jews who went into exile and had their entire nation destroyed because they wouldn't. Right. Even as late as after the Jesus period, the Jews get destroyed as a culture. Literally, their temple gets completely destroyed by Rome because they will not accept Roman gods. And even before that, for hundreds of years, the Jews, unlike every other people in the entire Roman Empire, got God carve outs because they absolutely would not accept the Roman gods. But if they didn't have to accept the Roman gods, they were fine. And the Jesus people came out of those people. Right. It's much more likely that the December 25th date is a Jewish is like created in relationship to Judaism than it is created in relationship to paganism. Because if Jesus died on the Passover and if all great prophets are conceived on the day that they died, then the Annunciation had to happen March 25th because that's when Jesus died during Passover. 
which means at nine months, he was born on December 25th. Now, there's also very complex reconstructions that you can do about the date of Jesus' birth. One version will place his birth on December 25th, and the other places his birth on September 11th. So there's... That was a whole bunch of stuff, but um, I try to keep it brief, dude. There is so much more. (laughs) Um, so okay, this is this is what's funny about this. Maybe we could talk a little bit about this, then we can wrap wrap it up. That what I've noticed about people who believe that a lot of these, um, like Easter and Christmas is pagan holiday and. Uh, I've actually never met a single one of them who have got their information from books. They're always got their information from like Instagram and like social yeah, it's media. Always YouTube. And, yeah. Yeah. YouTube. Like I found this yeah. account and like, you know, like the earth is flat. So, um, you know what you just heard Nick do for 20 minutes or maybe 15 minutes, mm-hmm. uh, you should listen to that as a person then you should try to replicate it and go read some real books and try to figure <laughs> out what you actually believe about history. Cause I think like, cause we talked, I'll at least real quick. We talked about, and we did a podcast, Nick and I did a podcast maybe a year or two ago on Easter. And one of Nick's argument was like, if you're going to take the, everything, like I'm not going to celebrate anything pagan argument. Like then you can't live on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Cause all of those words are derivatives of pagan gods or pagan whatever and it's like well then you just have to reject monday through sunday first and then you have to reject a bunch of other things because that's how language works like we're Mm -hmm. you know so yeah yeah i mean easter is like a a english german like god of spring who they also made the name of spring the name of that god so Easter is the religious celebration that happens in spring. You know, like it's like these over these overlay with each other. Nobody knows what East who Easter is anymore, but they know what Easter is, right? And that's just kind of how language evolves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. For, for me, if you're interested in the date, December 25th, there's actually a website called DEC 25th. So DEC 25th dot info. And it's a bunch of evangelical scholars who have published on whether or not you can reconstruct a December 25th date. And it's like their stuff has been published in journals and stuff. So it's like it's pretty scholarly stuff that it is. But listen, it's nerdy because in the ancient world, there were like 16 calendars functioning around the Mediterranean rim. And so like there's a lot of math. There's a lot of, well, you got to add in the lunar dates for the thing and the this for the that. And like, it okay, it is also it is also one of the ugliest websites I've ever seen in my life. I just pulled it up. It looks oh. like it was it was made by yes. Which is actually not necessarily bad if you're talking about theological scholars, because a lot of these are people are like not good at websites. Yeah, yeah, right. They just they're. they're That's how you know it's good. That's how you know it's good. Don't judge a website by its optics. Yeah, Yeah. you're looking for scholarly material. The fact that they have like books from the 1600s in PDF scan format on the is like. That's evidence That's that stuff. they're nerdy about this. I think that their reconstruction is really interesting. Yeah. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, this isn't to say that a person has to celebrate Christmas. Like that is, right. Paul says, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. one person esteems one day as all, as all the same. And what, or yeah, one person esteems one day as higher than another. And another person esteems all days alike. Let each person be fully convinced in his own mind. And he also says like the faith that you have keep between yourself and God. And I could be totally wrong with my understanding of that verse, but I, and, and so correct me if I'm wrong, but I read that and I'm like, 
yeah, maybe this isn't really like, not that we shouldn't come up with scholarly arguments for why Christmas isn't pagan or that we shouldn't review just flat out lies, Mm -hmm. but also the same respect to people that don't feel comfortable celebrating it. It's like, cool. Just. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree. You know. it's a, celebrating I, Christ, Christmas is not a, a Christian essential doctrine or something like that. It's not like if you don't celebrate Christmas, it's you're not saved. Well, and, but, yeah, and I think that everyone draws the line if we're talking about like oh connections to paganism. Everyone just draws the line kind of, and I tend to be of like, uh, God owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't, I don't yeah. live my life by what was once pagan. At some point, that's how I live my life. But some people are they're sensitive, and am mm-hmm. I saying that's right? No, but it's not, it's yeah. I mean, I, I do think that those people I, it's, there's been an increase in the last like five or six years. Well, it's because, become popular. Yeah. And so I, I you would mean to be like as anti-pagan as possible, like just like, well, I don't believe it, in any of that stuff. Just no, to be contrarian right. in ways that were like, to okay, be like anti-pagan though. Yeah, like, sure. Sure. But also like there's a bunch of flat earthers too. Like there's all these weird and they're all kind of in the same, it's the same like anti-pagan yeah. flat earther, like, like screw the government, which I I'm, I'm on board with that. But like the, the, all all these institutions and historical yeah. stuff and it's like i think that there's um i mean i think, I think that, that there's wisdom in saying saying like I, real quick i think that there's wisdom in being like okay where am i getting my information from and it is this i'm not saying that that the scholars are like the the ultimate there that that we can only listen to the scholars but like some of the stuff that people say about this like wh- that's like not true and i don't think that paul would 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 necessarily affirm somebody's no, historical but someone, fallacy but if someone has the conviction let's say not totally to, totally uh, yeah not to uh right. sorry um celebrate christmas yeah, because yeah, yeah. it's not an established Days. yeah day in yeah. scripture where we're supposed to okay like sure sure I no, think, no, no, I, yeah stay true to your convictions is really good and i'm not going against you in that um yeah but i do th- I, I do think when paul says that he's not saying don't dispute with each other about like don't not argue mm. like still you should be able to right, talk to each right, other right. and pursue yeah, the truth yeah. and then as you do that your conscience may change or it may not right you might go oh yeah, yeah. you know what i can't eat meat like i thought i couldn't before yeah. and that was faith and now i like i actually realize i was wrong right yeah, so our conscience yeah. moves over time what that passage says is yeah you have christians who their consciences aren't going to believe the same thing and you shouldn't try to force them into the same behavior because obeying conscience actually precedes holiness Right. So like, well, it's, it's part of holiness. Right. Right. But it, but like you might be doing something according to conscience, which is not correct. Right. Oh, so what right, you, right. you were doing like is like, quote, a sinful or bad action. But because you're doing what you're doing out of faith, if you if you switch over to the right thing for the wrong reasons, you're not actually becoming more godly. So, so you can only switch for the that's tricky. That's tricky stuff because our consciences need to be formed by they need to be yeah they need to be trained to be sensitive to the right things Mm -hmm. which is the process of sanctification okay yeah that's a whole other podcast i I want to say something about so we talked about this beforehand that there are there are celebrations that jesus participated in that scripture doesn't command uh, the voice mm. from the voice of God that be done Purim and Hanukkah are the two obvious ones in John's mm. gospel and Jesus celebrates them. And I think one of the things to get at is it is true that the apostle Paul says in two places, right? In Colossians, he says like, you should not govern yourselves by these days. You cer- certainly shouldn't judge each other and you shouldn't get too infatuated in 
like all the mysticism of these days or angels or that kind of stuff that can go really badly wrong. Right. That's mm-hmm. very true. And then what Annalise quoted from Romans 14 about like, don't fight with each other and try to force each other to behave in certain ways. There's a certain amount of like allowance of conscience that you have to be. However, it's also true that celebrations and rituals and some of those things are part of treasuring things up and pondering them. And yeah. so we are free to participate in certain rituals, including festivals and celebrations when they are in relationship to something God has done. And we're doing them in ways that we believe that God would approve of. Hmm. And so things like celebrating Hanukkah for Jesus or for us, celebrating the celebration of the nativity of Christ's birth, when we are celebrating that yeah. God came in the person of the flesh. And like, there are good reasons to celebrate Christmas that are positive when received with piety. Mm, and yeah. it seems like Jesus did that sort of thing. So in that yeah. sense, like there's a tension between that, the like, because the re- regulative principle can just be the constant application of the conservative principle. Just all, like if there's two choices, yeah. you always take the conservative yeah. one. And you end up a Pharisee if you just take that to its logical conclusion. And But if you're like, well, we're, we could do what we want. Well, you become a, fair, a Sadducee if you just keep following that conclusion, right? Like if you could just pragmatically do what you think will be religiously helpful. You end up a Sadducee because you you end up with all these traditions of men, right? And Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees was is that a lot of their conservative principles had actually created unbiblical traditions, yeah, right. So they put walls around yeah. the, the law itself instead of just following the law, right, right. So, so it just it requires judgment. We have to become mature yeah. so that we can like improvisationally engage in godly judgment. And there's no shortcut to that. You have to grow in godliness and pursue wisdom. Yeah. Tell me, tell me, Annalise, if this is what you were trying to say, or maybe I'm I'm not thinking clearly. Um, was that just we should and try to our best to encourage people in their um, being faithful and true true to their convictions, um, like like encourage like, hey, like that's really good that you feel convicted about that, and because you feel convicted about that, you're willing to to do it. But let's have a conversation about about uh, let's like let's still argue like nick said let's still argue and have conversations about it but like don't just condemn somebody's convictions well what i'm saying is yeah because for instance just to give like a silly example let's say someone feels convicted they they have to wear only skirts or whatever and oftentimes the conversation is like it's like i feel judged by this person that takes the harder stance on something so Mm -hmm. you know you take the hardest stance don't judge me the same reciprocal graciousness and charitability has to be extended to the person with to, to, to say you wear only skirts and you know, Godspeed and the same charity has to be given to the person with a slightly, as long as they're not, you know, making it a qualification for salvation or, you know, taking it in these crazy unbiblical directions. What I'm saying is that like judgment goes both ways. And so, do you There's, think if I if somebody said that and I said this is all hypothetical, but if I, somebody said to me like, "Hey, I just only wear uh, skirts," I just that's how I feel convicted. And I said like, if I said something along the lines of like, "Well, why?" Because that's not biblical at all. There's yeah, no, I mean, bi- to Nick's like, like, point, yeah, we should talk about it. We should debate mm-hmm. it. Okay. Yeah, but, I think you could argue that's biblical, and I think you can also argue it's not. Like you can't argue that it's biblical to you can't argue that it is explicitly biblical to wear skirts. Okay, that word explicitly is very important. Yeah, because there's a number of passages <laughs> of the Bible that seem to say that the distinction of femininity should be protected. Well, how would you signal that culturally? 
right? And if women say, I do that by having long hair and wearing skirts and not pants, that's how I signal culturally I'm like, within cool. my group. Fine. <laughs> right. If you think you're closer to God because of it, that, or like that, that's the, like she right. said, like that's right. the gospel. Okay. That's right. the problem. Yeah. And then you can encourage that, but I can still, I can still say, you know, my wife doesn't do that. And often, cause it becomes this whole, like you're saying a judgment, and you have to give charity obviously, but it's like, so oftentimes I found conversations and situations like that. It's like, I do this. And it's this like all it's like the super virtuous, you know, like it's like as if my wife's not, you know, she doesn't wear skirts all the time. But people, like, I have met people that do do those really conservative things and are not like that at all. Totally, and that was totally, my wake totally. up call to be like, I, some people are literally just so focused on their own piety the right and walk yeah. with God. And they're yeah. just, they're and if I in, perceive yeah. them to be judging me, that's more of a reflection of my internal turmoil because I don't conform to them. And it has nothing to do with how they actually view it. So yeah. that's, that's the stance I take is that when we see someone, you know, uh, doing more of like an external, uh, not like show of piety, but like maybe being on the more rigorous end of things, mm-hmm. it's also, it's also our job to not like ascribe or attribute mm-hmm. judgment on their part towards us. And it should like, be, it let them should, li- like, right. It should, the first thing that comes to our mind should probably be encouragement rather than immediate uh, disdain or something like that. Like it was just right. like a it's personal just people that don't drink. Yeah. People that and, don't drink. I'm, I'm literally, I'm like, I drink not excessively. Um, mm-hmm. But if someone tells me that they do, I'm going to assume that they have a very good reason for it because I'm erring on mm-hmm. the side of charitability, which is a Christian virtue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to assume that it, it, it proceeds from mm-hmm. a good desire yeah. and not legalism mm. until given other information. Yeah. I think, I think what Annalise said getting at is super important, especially if you're younger, because as you get older, like something you'll either get more legalistic and angry or you get a little bit more like non-judgy, you know? And I think if, I think godliness will lead you to be a little bit more non-judgy, but I think like when you're younger, especially when the culture is sort of like to the left, so to speak, you you tend to naturally like really judge people to your right. If they're one step to your right, you're like, you're crazy. And if they're like five steps to your left, so you're like really kind to them. And you, ju- you need to be, you need to be consistent, you know, like, like, yeah. like, like I have to treat my like super fundamentalist brothers and sisters similarly to my like more le- like to the more left than I'm comfortable with brothers and sisters. And there is a r- apostasy to the right and there's an apostasy to the left. I need to be careful about where that line is and what makes it such and be real, just really clear. And and I've found that like, I have seen in like in my, my colleagues, especially when you're younger, they just would lambast people like one iota to their right, who are a little bit more conservative than them and be like, this is yeah. so destructive and so blah, blah. And then people who like, just don't even believe in Jesus to their left. They're like so careful and they want to have a yeah. posture of yeah. listening. Yeah. I'm like, look, yeah. if yeah. you want to have a posture of listening towards these people who are to your left, that's great. But to turn yeah. around and not do that to the people to your right, right is just inhuman. It's like it's hypocrisy, right? right. If you yes. want to be a person of grace, then be a person of grace to everyone. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's funny because it, like the, yeah, like you're saying the people who will be like, uh, there's a lot of openness to the conversation about like, well, is homosexuality a sin? And everybody's the people will be like, yeah, that's like I have conversations yeah. about that. But if you wear a skirt. Because you're trying to be modest, people will be like, that person is legalistic. Because I have been on the receiving (laughs) end. I have been on the receiving end of people being irrationally angry when you make more to the right choices. Now, I've actually Mm -hmm. gotten less and less conservative in like my dress and Mm -hmm. how I, you know, like 
I mm-hmm. used to be very, very plain, plain Jane. And so I have been on the receiving end of that. And mm-hmm. it gave me the wake up call to be like, okay, <laughs> this is, this is coming from like an irrational place of they, they feel this is an emotional reaction that they're having to what they see me doing. It has nothing to do with the way I view them. Which in some ways could be, can be a sign of like, um, usually, I mean, not, not all the time. If you're being a jerk, then it's because you're a jerk. But like oftentimes when people feel such irrational, emotional reactions to things, there's probably something in them that, that maybe sees that, that there's some goodness to it or like, Hey, like maybe, maybe this is, this person in your scenario, like maybe you're dressing more conservatively and like, maybe they think, I don't know, their conscience could be like, yeah, maybe you need to dress a little bit more conservatively yeah. or something. You never know. But like that, that can get that really upset at cognitive yeah. dissonance. So yeah, like yeah, yeah. if you're talking to a young woman who's like, look, I shouldn't accent myself. I shouldn't draw attention to myself. I should be like, and, and it's like, that's simple. Like it's very clear. Right. Or if another person's like, look, you can wear makeup, you can wear just like, it's okay to have a low neckline. I mean, like I'm a woman, like deal with it. Right. Like either one of those views is very simple. You can do what you want or you know exactly what to do. The minute you're kind of like, okay, so we're supposed to be modest, but God has made us beautiful. God has said like, he's adorned us. Like even like our hair is like a glory to us. So like there's a way in which we've been physically adorned by God and we should embrace that. And then there's like another way to have like fancy braiding and like bringing attention to ourselves. That's like untoward and creates division. Like that's a bad thing. So then how do I adjudicate my participation in beauty in such a way yeah. as that I'm like, that's more complicated. And, and you it's, explore it and you, and you yeah. ask questions and, and, and that's like what you were saying earlier, the pursuit of wisdom, mm-hmm. which and is not some, the shortcut. I know some women in my church that were just kind of like, here, you can see three quarters of my boobs. And like, as they've grown in Christ, they have like sorted that out. They've been like, okay, I want to be attractive, but I also want to be modest and right. And they've worked that out. I also yeah. know women who are just like, I won't wear makeup. Maybe I shouldn't even brush my hair. I'm going to cut it at my chin. Like, this is really practical. And then they're like, okay, that's why am I treating my husband that way? Or like, wait, I want to get married and guys don't pay attention to me. It's like, well, maybe if you looked more like a woman, you know, and that like you knew you had a sexuality, they would be drawn to you as a woman. And then they're like, they start moving that direction. Like, well, you know, maybe I should do this. And like, maybe I can do a little this. And, and like, they get to a very similar place of of feminine, modesty, attractive, comfortable in their own flesh, body and clothing. But they just, they came the other way. They and get to the place. Like you just of gotta being give like, people place to do that. They get like yeah. to the place where they're more like feminine, not feminist. Is that a great way to to wrap it up? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was a stupid. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh, you have something to say? No, I was just saying. No, I no. Okay, that's funny. You're We're good? talkers. Okay. We uh-huh. always have more to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah we got to wrap this up. It is Christmas. And we just wanted to do a little special Christmas conversation, talked about a lot of different things. And um, I don't know. We just hope everybody has a good Christmas. If, you're if your workout went out on this long, you are very fit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or you're just doing way too much cardio and. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. So if I'm you're. sorry, if, but an hour and 40 minutes, that's just no. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. I listen to everything at 2.0 speed though. Okay. Okay. That's still too long. Yeah. 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 And also that's not, I don't like that. The, the two, two, one and a half, two speed. It's like, it's not like a real conversation. Nobody talks that fast in real life. Although 
Nick I, talks pretty fast. Nick so talks I don't know really how fast. to. Well, it's funny. I, I don't know. Nick, Nick and Ben Shapiro are similar in how fast they talk. And Ben Shapiro, one time he was like, look, if you speed my, vo- if you speed my podcast up to two, two X, you actually go back in time because, because he talks so <laughs> fast. It was, it was funny. Um, anyways. Okay. So if you're listening to this, you like it. Uh, obviously this is on the feminine, not feminist podcast, which is, which is awesome. Um, I'm going to just give, I'm going to tell people that Annalise within the first two weeks uh ranked in like 18 countries uh for your podcast so that's awesome so congratulations very cool thank you um and then uh nick and i are uh we do the optive theology podcast and so um we'll put link in the description for both the podcast and um um (laughs) and so yeah, I don't know. Uh, anything, any con- concluding thoughts before we, before we get re- like, before we completely end this thing? Just thank you if you made it this far yeah. <laughs> and we hope you have a wonderful Christmas Yeah, or don't have a wonderful Christmas if that's not what you're doing on the 25th. <laughs> yeah. So yep. yeah. Nothing from you, Nick? Nope. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Well, if, if you like this podcast, make sure you like, subscribe, share this with your friends, give us a five-star rating, leave us a review and that's it. We'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye. All right.